God's word. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We stop our reading from God's word there. Tonight is the story of the rich young man and in his encounter with Jesus. So from the Gospel of Mark, our co-authors, Mark and also God the Holy Spirit, who's the co-author, give us unmistakable indicators about the relevance of the story of the rich young man. If you look at chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, prior to our passage, they tell us about belonging to the kingdom, receiving the kingdom, and entering the kingdom. Listen again to the words of Jesus, Mark 10, 13. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. So to enter the kingdom of God, does a candidate, if we would say it that way, a person who considers entering the kingdom of God, need to be an adult who is accomplished and has something to offer, some sort of resume, something to contribute to the kingdom? No. It's upside down. Quite the opposite. Instead, one must be like a child with nothing to offer and complete dependence in order to belong to the kingdom, receive the kingdom, enter the kingdom. And now that that teaching has been stated in verses 13 through 16, we shift over to our passage starting in verse 17 and we ask then this question, why is it 
sequential that way, following that passage to this, it's meant for us to ask this question. Will someone with great wealth receive the kingdom like a little child would? This is our story about the rich young man to answer that very question. He's the opposite of a helpless child. He's an adult, for one. He has resources, for two. And he didn't approach Jesus with nothing. He didn't approach Jesus with dependence. He approached Jesus with great wealth and with a question. What must I do? He wasn't relying on Jesus. He had great influence, and he was used to having great influence. He had kept the law. He had been successful financially and socially, and he was coming to now kind of sew things up and take care of this religious side of things too and ask Jesus if there's something missing. So to enter a kingdom of God, does a person, a candidate to enter the kingdom of God, need to be rich? No. Again, here, it's upside down. Quite the opposite. Instead, one who has wealth will have special difficulty entering the kingdom. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 10.23 in the middle of our passage. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So the story of this rich person is more than simply an expression of Jesus' attitude towards wealth in general. Rather, this story is part of a much broader critique of conventional human values. The last will be first, is how the passage ends. It's upside down. It's opposite of what one might expect for Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the leader of this uh, group, Jesus the king of this kingdom, to say... We are witnessing in this chapter the continuing re-education of the disciples of Jesus. You see, in those days, what the disciples would have been used to, uh, what they would have to be re-educated about, is that in those days, wealth was welcomed. Wealth was an irrefutable sign and mark of God's blessing. Oh, God must really be blessing you. Look how much money you have. And so any rabbi, for example, who rose from poverty to wealth and from obscurity to influence was commended and commended without qualification. There's no embarrassment or qualification about commending such a person. God is surely blessing you and we can tell by how much money you have. But Jesus turned it all on its head. Jesus presented wealth as a barrier to enter into the kingdom, a barrier that cannot be overcome. It's not just difficult, Jesus presents here. It's impossible to go over the barrier of wealth and get into the kingdom. Thus, the main point of tonight's message, as you were looking at your handout, Jesus warned us about a sly spiritual snare that is impossible to escape without his rescue. First, we'll see how the spiritual snare of letting our hearts trust wealth is the issue. Secondly, the impossibility of escaping the snare of a heart that trusts in wealth. And third, the grace and power of God to save anyway. Bless us abundantly. So first, this spiritual snare. Verse 17, we see Jesus is now on the move. He's traveling, and in his travels, about to leave, a man approached him, knelt down, showing respect, 
asked how he could become entitled to receive eternal life. Verse 18, Jesus questioned the man's definition of goodness. Verse 19, Jesus pointed him to the the Ten Commandments. If you want to talk about God and God's goodness, think through the Ten Commandments. So the man listened and responded and said he had kept all of the commandments. And you notice that Jesus doesn't say to him, liar, (laughs) you broke them, don't you see? You broke them like this and this and this. Instead, he takes that, he accepts that at face value. And in verse 21, we have this moving statement where Jesus looked at him, looking at him, loved him. He had pity upon the man who had presented himself as obedient to the commandments, to the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus, in loving him, decided to give the man a gift, decided to give the man a recommendation, decided to point him in the direction of how to think differently and to recommend for him a course of action which would solve his problem. would give him the rest of soul that the man needed. If he was so accomplished, why would he come to Jesus and ask, how do I inherit eternal life? He must be searching for something. He must have needed rest of soul, and so Jesus instructs him for how to achieve it. What is it that he's missing? How can he achieve this rest of soul? The problem is his heart is attached to money. In order to separate his heart from money, he would need to give away all of his money. That's a rather radical um, recommendation. And it's interesting as Jesus stands there and loves the man, we get insight into the rich young man. You have two men. You have Jesus and then one that we've described as the rich young man. But aren't there two rich young men? Is Jesus not also young, about 30 this time? Is he not also rich? He came from heaven's riches. He had lived for all eternity in glory, wealth, and the riches of fellowship with God the Father. Paul says this about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, through, though Christ was rich for your sake, Christ became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was rich. Thou who wast rich, we sang at Christmas. Jesus is saying to the man that Jesus is richer than anyone had ever known. And he came here in order to enter poverty deeper than anyone had ever known by dying for us and coming under the power of death for a time. Why? For you, good sir. For you, you young, rich fellow, you. Jesus is warranted to say, since he gave away his big riches to get us, we should give away our little riches to follow him. What's the big deal? Give away all your riches. Jesus himself is the ultimate rich young man who gave away his wealth to get us, asking us to give away our wealth to get Jesus. That presentation, that option, that decision is put before the young man. Verse 21, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22 is so sad. This young man uh, presented with this option, this 
salvation, this going from idolatry to truly having a relationship with God responds by declining. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he, this young man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He just couldn't do it. He went away sorrowful because he had a lot of wealth, because he had a lot of possessions. His gold would remain his God. A person who endeared himself to the Son of God and was loved in a sense of having a personal recommendation given to him. He endeared himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He even had an exemplary life. If we'll take him at face value, he was he was upstanding fellow that he kept the commandments. And yet, he could still be an idolater. He, he loved money above everything else. For this rich young man to lose his money would be to lose himself. Money was for him what God the Father was for Jesus. Money is his everything. And for Jesus, God the Father is his everything. Money was for him what God the Father should have been for him. One thing can cost a person their salvation. Managing wealth can become the priority of life, and the things of God go by the wayside. How do you get eternal life, he had asked. Drop the riches. Cling to Jesus, which is greater riches. Instead of sadly walking away from Jesus back to your riches, Walk away from the riches back to Jesus with great joy. That's how you get eternal life. But the man refused. What we're learning in this passage is the sneaky pitfall that wealth is to a spiritual walk. I've called it in the title of the sermon, a sly spiritual snare. Jesus is so right to warn us about this. Sly spiritual snare. Snare. So number one, we've seen it's letting our hearts trust in wealth. That's the problem. That's the snare. Point number two, moving on now to verses 23 to 26, we'll see the impossibility of escaping this snare yourself. Verse 23, Jesus said it's difficult for the wealthy to follow God and enter his kingdom. Verse 24, Jesus said it again, and now with this tender term for his disciples, children, children, it's difficult to enter the kingdom, underlining this. By repeating it a second time. Verse 25, Jesus then gives a powerful illustration. It's easier for a camel to go through the hole of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's very, very, very difficult, verging towards impossible. And sure enough, he says in verse, they say in verse 26, um, no one can be saved then. Well, who can be saved? They, they get it. They understand that because a camel can't go through the hole of a needle, then persons must not be able to be saved. And that's Jesus' point. It's not only difficult, which he said twice, it's impossible to escape the snare of heart that trusts in wealth on your own. You can't pull yourself out of it. You can't extrapolate yourself from the spiritual problem. The disciples of Jesus, we're told, were exceedingly astonished at this. Exceedingly astonished at the impossibility of salvation. And you see it in verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Astounded. They were surrounded with the, what we would call today the prosperity gospel. 
the prosperity gospel is saying that if God is blessing you, you'll see it in your bank account. You'll be wealthy. It's a sure sign that God is blessing you if you're wealthy, and if you're not wealthy, that's a sure sign that God is not blessing you. That's prosperity gospel. In those days, they had it already. The rabbis of Judaism taught that God's favor can be seen in God providing wealth and great wealth. We see that in our false teachers today. God must be blessing him. Rolling in the money. Alternatively, God must not be blessing the other fellow because he's broke. Those are not biblical values. So Jesus spoke up on the issue. And he says this, wealth creates such a barrier to people coming to God in childlike full dependence on Christ alone for their salvation that humanly speaking, on the human level, for us to be able to do anything for ourselves or for each other, all of us can do nothing about it. It's impossible for the wealthy to be saved. Salvation for the wealthy is not something that man can accomplish. And then he goes ahead and says it in verse 27. So far he said it's difficult twice. Then he gave an illustration about the camel. And now he comes out and says it, confirming in verse 27, with man it is impossible. Verse 23, difficult. Verse 24, difficult. Verse 25, illustration of impossibility. Verse 27, outright statement, it is impossible. Possible for man. But it is possible for God, which brings us to our third point, the grace and power of God to save us anyway and to bless us abundantly. If you want to be saved, you have to replace what you have been looking to for your Savior. If you've been looking to money, it's impossible. You can't buy salvation and you can't extrapolate your heart from trusting in money. If you look to man... It's impossible because no man can save you, save you from yourself, save you from your desires or false trust. Instead, you have to look to a different Savior. You have to look to God as your Savior. And what is the thing that you look to instead of God to help you get through? That's your idol. That's the thing that's in the way. So verse 28, Peter says this to Jesus. We left everything and followed you. Now we're broadening it out. It's not just wealth anymore. Now we're talking about what's valuable. Because we didn't just leave money. We didn't just leave Peter as a fisherman, leaving behind a boat, some possessions, some nets. We left everything. And now he's referring to all sorts of intangibles as well, precious things. In verse 29, Jesus starts to list them out because he acknowledges what Peter is saying. He acknowledged it was home that they left. It was brothers that they left. It was sisters and mother and father and children and lands that they left. Jesus acknowledges back to Peter and to all of them that it does cost something to follow Jesus. What Jesus says next is very significant. Verse 30, in God's kingdom, the benefits and blessings are too great to imagine too great to explain. And you say, well, that's intriguing. Try me. (laughs) Try to explain it. Okay. Tell you what we'll do. We'll have a statement from the greatest teacher who ever lived attempting to explain briefly how great are the benefits of this kingdom. How's that? 
Yeah, that's what we, we have here in verse 30. Whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, whatever you lose out on to follow Jesus, home, brothers, sisters, mother, wealth, you will receive a hundred times as much. And this is the precious, irreplaceable stuff. Home, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. And wait, there's a bonus blessing in the list. Did you catch it? Let me read it to you, see if you catch it. Verse 30. Who will not, those who lose will also receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Huh. Right up there in the list. With persecutions. Who tucked that in there? Is that a typo? With persecutions in the list of sisters, mothers, children, lands? Hmm. To follow Jesus means that you will get persecutions. But in terms of accounting, the ledger system, is it on the debit side or the credit side? Are blessings a bad thing or a good thing? It's a blessing. It belongs in the list of the blessings. Wait, wait. You kind of lost me again. How? How are persecutions a good thing? Because it shows for sure you're in the kingdom of God. It's irrefutable proof that you share all that Christ has in his kingdom. If you share with Christ in his sufferings, you'll also reign with him. If we serve God and we're deprived of earthly family, it will be made up 100 times more in a spiritual family. But that's not even the best part. If you lose your sister... You have a hundred sisters in the church. That's not even the best part. That's not even the core thing that Jesus is saying. That's just side benefits. What Jesus means is that he himself makes up for every loss. That it's worth it to lose all of that stuff and have Jesus in the end. Let's say, example, if you lose your mother's affection and concern, you get back a hundred times the affection and concern because you have Christ, the shepherd of sheep, who's caring for you. If you lose home, whatever home meant to you, your previous home, whether it's a location or a house, something that felt secure and comfortable for you, you get back a hundred times the sense of home and comfort and security because you have Christ. He's saying that he promises to be so much blessing to us that we will not experience a loss of what we gave up to follow him. Let me try to put it this way. When you have Christ, you haven't lost anything. When you have Christ, you have gained everything. He is everything. Do you ever have a garage sale? I can't recommend it. I think it's terrible to try to have a garage sale. It's a complete waste of time. Shambles to your garage. You never make any money. But if you want to, go for it. Think about having a garage sale. My point in bringing it up is you look through the stuff of your life. Let's say you assemble it all in your literal garage. And you're looking through the stuff and you're putting price tags on it, right? This is value. I'll sell that for 10. I'll give, get rid of that for 5. I want 25 for that. And you're, you're having a garage sale with your belongings, putting value on them. Now, take that idea and put it in your life, like your whole life. The tangible things and the intangible things. Go through your life putting value tags on them. 
You know that for the Christian, you only have two tags. One says everything, and a whole bunch of little tags that say rubbish. You put a tag on the Lord Jesus Christ, you say everything. And everything else in your life, you put rubbish, 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 rubbish. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's expressing what Jesus was saying here in this passage. And if you have this perspective, you are not caught in the snare of wealth because you understand the value of knowing Jesus. What have we seen? Jesus warned us about a sly spiritual snare. It's impossible to escape without his rescue. The snare is letting our hearts trust in wealth. It's impossible to escape on your own. And the grace and power of God save us anyway and bless us abundantly. And so I have three applications to us. Number one, give Jesus first place in your life. If, if you put tonight's message in the language of the Ten Commandments, it's the first commandment issue. Have no other gods before me. That's the issue. Don't let anything take the place of God in your life. Put nothing ahead of him in your mind and your heart. Put away anything that's an obstacle because of what Jesus said to his disciples about what he was willing to do for them. Jesus was able to command the highest commitment from them. Remember the previous chapter, Mark 9, verse 31, Jesus taught his disciples how he would save them from the snare of wealth and all other sins. This is how Jesus said it. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Mark 9, 30 to 31. So after saying that, we can, all these verses since then, even including our passage, are him trying to express and them trying to grasp what the value of Jesus is and his salvation. He is the premium, paramount, top thing. And he then demands us as disciples, same thing he demanded of his original 12 disciples, that we give him that top place priority in our lives above all other people, above all other things. Paul also wrote it this way in Colossians 1.18. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So point of application number one, put Christ first in your life. Point of application number two, I think you would guess that I would say this, beware of the love of money. This is a big, bad, dark one in terms of danger for our spiritual walk. Now, I want to clear up one thing on this. You say, well, I don't have money, so how can I have the love of money because I don't have money? Wrong. The love of money is something you can have if you have money, or the love of money is something you can have if you don't have money. You're just always looking for it. Why do people buy lottery tickets? Love of money, which they don't have. Beware of the love of money, all of us. Doesn't matter how much you have, or how much you think you have, or how much you'd like to have. The love of money is a spiritual problem. It's not about your wealth. It's not about your poverty. It's about your heart. 
Paul wrote to young Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. We use our money to serve Christ. And we do so with generosity and we live with contentment because we are aware of the love of money as a problem and a sin. We've put our hearts in Christ's hands. Second, beware of the love of money. And third and last one, if you're suffering, conduct a value inventory. Go through your life, like I said, the garage sale, and put value tags on everything. And Paul helps us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 What if your affliction drove you to Christ? What if your affliction prevented you from becoming lukewarm in your walk with God? How do you put a price tag on that? The first will be last, he said. The last will be first, he said. Who's he talking about? The rich young man. He's first. First in influence, first in wealth. He was young. He's probably good looking too. First. But didn't he become last? What a sad, sad, sad picture of him walking away and choosing money over Christ. The first became last. But also the last become first. Who's he talking about there? It's the disciples. What a ragtag group of guys. How silly it is from the world's perspective to give up a perfectly good fishing industry business to follow this wandering rabbi. They're like last. Last in the world's perspective. And Jesus says, they're first. You have the first uh, seat of honor. You have the, the place closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have understood what the kingdom is about and you're first here with us. The poor wandering disciples became first. He's saying to the rich young man, I want you to imagine your life without any money at all. Okay? The rich young man comes to him and says, what would I do to inherit eternal life? And he basically says, take your life and imagine no money at all. No money at all. All you have is me. Can you live like that? Is that enough for you? That's how you inherit eternal life. And Jesus is saying the same to us. It's not that we have to actually relinquish the money. It's about our hearts. And we relinquish our hearts. And when our hearts belong to Jesus, then we use our money to serve him. Because giving away money doesn't hurt. You don't ask yourself, how much do I have to give? You ask yourself, how much can I give? It's a completely changed heart. If you're suffering, conduct this sort of value inventory. You have Jesus and nothing else. Can you live with that? Is it worth it? And then when we look at our suffering, we see it in the light of the glory of eternity in comparison. Tremendously helpful if you're suffering, conduct that value inventory. Let's pray. Father in heaven,